0: stories, big guests, the big
1: picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, before this whole pandemic, uh, the Canadian media landscape has, has changed a lot and there have been a lot of challenges on Canadian media outlets in, including broadcasters. Uh, there was an effort by the government to find ways of supporting local media. Uh, and obviously that became controversial, but it it should be clear that was not assistance that was made available to broadcasters. That bailout, if you want to call it, was aimed uh, specifically at newspapers. But obviously broadcasters, radio, TV, are are a big part of journalism in Canada, and a big part of telling local stories and being connected to communities. Because look, if we're not connected to communities, um, then we're just not going to be viable. You've got to be relevant and matter in the lives of people uh, so that people feel that connection and that you have some kind of a sustainable business model. So I I think there's some big concern about what now this pandemic has done to compound the situation. Obviously, for local media in Canada, broadcasters and newspapers still as well, you know, that business model involves uh, advertising well, those, those advertisers have been hit pretty hard by this whole situation. So for businesses who haven't been able to be open in some cases or have seen you know, big hits to their revenue, that's going to translate into how much they have available to, to spend on advertising. That creates a, a real revenue crisis for broadcasters. Uh, today, the Canadian Association of Broadcasters released a new report, The Crisis in Canadian Media and the Future of Local Broadcasting. And it paints a dire picture of what might lie ahead including specifically the possible closure of 50 radio stations within just the next four to six months and a further 150 radio stations in the following 18 months, possible closure of 40 or more of Canada's 94 private local TV stations in the next 12 to 36 months, the most vulnerable being AM radio stations as well as independent and other private radio and TV stations in smaller markets across Canada. So it's one thing in a city like Calgary, we've got, you know, more than a dozen radio stations, to lose one or two, those are people's lives impacted, obviously, but in smaller communities where you just have maybe one or two radio stations, or you have a local TV station, that is a voice of the community, that keeps people connected to what's going on in their community, tells those local stories, to lose that would be catastrophic in a lot of respects. So how dire is the situation? What can be done to address it? Joining us to talk more about this report, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Lenore Gibson, chair of the Canadian Association of Broadcasters. Uh, Much more, by the way, at cab-acr.ca. Lenore, thank you for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. Well, as, as you say, as this report says, Canadian private television and radio is in crisis. Why is there a crisis?
0: Well, the uh, the local meat broadcast media industry was already experiencing um, uh, significant uh, uh, revenue loss prior to COVID. Um, you know, we've got the uh, the global internet conglomerates such as you know Facebook and Google who are taking our our, our local news and using it on the, their platforms, and that competition uh, for for, for um, as well as, as the Netflixes of, of this world as well, and that competition for for Canadian consumers' eyeballs and ears uh, has 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 resulted in a decrease of uh, of revenues for local radio stations and local TV stations for several years. So, if we just look at radio, private radio revenues, they've been in decline since 2014, and as uh, in 20. 19 40 percent of canadian private radio stations had a negative profit level uh that with the impact of covid that's likely going to be that the report predicts that that's going to go to 50 of of private radio stations in canada losing money on the on the on the local television side they've been losing money since 2011 and they're currently in, in 2019 70 percent of local television stations were losing money that's going to go to 80 percent and that's what the report predicts so and COVID, of course has, has, is is part for that responsible for that increase of uh of, of lost revenue so, so and, between yeah. 2020 and 2022 The report predicts that there's going to be an over $1 billion deficit in advertising revenue for local radio and television. The industry is going to lose an additional billion dollars.
1: And what's the consequence of all that?
0: The consequence is that, you know, the the operators, the the, 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 the CAB's members, the operators who, who have these local television stations and these local radio stations, they have had to streamline their costs. Uh, for several years, because of the the the, the competitive pressures facing the industry, uh, they've cut where they can without impacting programming. They've cut in administration. Um, they've cut in technical uh, technical other technical areas. Uh, but what's left to cut is programming, your local news, and that's where they don't want to cut because local news this country together. It provides the, you know, it, it, it gives a shared experience to to local communities. And they want to, CAB members want to continue providing that. But we need help. The, 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 the stations need help from uh, the federal government and they need help from our regulator, the CRTC. Uh, we need to have a good hard look at, at local broadcast media in this country so that we can have a a more fair and sustainable future for local media right
1: right and, and and this very much is media it is very much about journalism and and certainly you know radio uh, tv is is very much about keeping canadians informed Now, obviously not not every radio station is focused on journalism uh, you know a lot are exclusively music stations but you know they serve the community in other ways don't they
0: absolutely they do they you know they're out in the community um promoting the charity promoting the mm-hmm. community events um they're also the ones that tell you like when uh, you know there's emergencies happening in your right. community community as well they report on the forest fires that are happening uh in in bc or in northern ontario um and you know four out of the five top news services that Canadians pay attention to are those belonging to private broadcasters. That's according to a Reuters report uh, from 2020. Um, So it's clear that Canadians value their local news and and, and it, it needs to have a more sustainable future so that we can continue to provide what Canadians want.
1: So, what can be done? I mean you know the, the pandemic's not going to end tomorrow unfortunately we're going to be stuck in this for some time, and and that's going to continue to have uh, some impact on the economy so what what can be done to address this? do you think
0: well at the begin in your intro, you talked to the uh, you referenced the you uh, reference the journalism tax credit that print media has that, which is something mm-hmm. that the government has provided to print media if the government believes that m- Local news is important, which it does clearly from a print perspective. There's no reason why it has to make a distinction with the broadcast side. It's- local news is important then it should be equally supported in some manner between you know all the local media outlets be it print or a radio station or a television station uh that's one of the things that the government could look at uh they could also look you know probably aware too that other countries are imposing a um uh, uh, a, a, I'll call it a tax. It's probably not the most accurate word for it. On 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 Google and Facebook uh, for using br- new sources that aren't there. So if it's a print source or a uh, or, or a broadcast source, um, there's other things two that the the government could do uh, that's more specific to the broadcast industry um, for COVID relief. And that would be waiving some of the government fees that broadcasters have to pay.
1: Yeah, certainly on the regulatory side, I mean, you know, the, the broadcast industry still labors under rules that were created in a very different era. An era that recognized the importance of of having those licenses and the responsibility that went along with that. But now those regulated broadcasters are having to compete with very much unregulated entities, aren't they?
0: Who do not have any of the obligations uh from an exhibition or an expenditure basis that, that that Canadian broadcasters do. They aren't required, you know, to play Canadian music, Canadian artists, and they aren't required to contribute to Canadian programming, uh, either through funding it or exhibiting it. And we do have to do that. And we're pleased to play our role in 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 promoting Canadian culture, but the playing the 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 competitive environment needs to um, the regulatory environment needs to recognize the new competitive environment, and it's not just um, and, and and so and so those foreign players such as Netflix or Spotify, uh, they should be contributing to the Canadian broadcasting system uh, by. Uh, we believe, by
1: funding it, fun- funding it. Right. Much more is mentioned. Uh, CAB-ACR.ca, the Canadian Association, uh, Association of Broadcasters. Lenore, thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it.
0: You're very welcome, Bob.
1: Take care. Uh, Lenore Gibson care. is uh, board chair with the Canadian Association of Broadcasters, uh, which released this report today. And yeah, a bit of a dire warning about uh, the state of broadcasting in Canada, What's what's needed to fix it. Well, an interesting story there in the news with uh, Brenda that kind of speaks to all of this and the controversy around that ticket that was issued to uh, someone who had showed up to a protest at the Alberta Legislature. And, you know, questions about, well, why would that ticket have been issued in the first place? And don't people still have the freedom to gather for protests? And obviously we saw much bigger protests and a much different cause uh, that ensued soon after. But sure, look, I mean, through this kind of a, a, a challenging situation, there, there is going to be a, a need to find a balance. And it can perhaps be awkward at times trying to find that balance between putting in place meaningful and effective public health measures to address the pandemic and still respecting the individual rights and freedoms of Canadians. I suppose in some respects, some of this is is doomed to come into conflict, but that isn't to say that all governments have handled all of this the same way. The Canadian Constitution Foundation has today released a report called Grading Our Leaders, Respect for the Constitution During the COVID-19 Crisis, and it assigns a letter grade Uh, to each provincial government or the provincial premiers, uh, and to the prime minister. also uh, looks at some select mayors across the country. And some did a lot better than others when it came to maintaining some respect uh, for rights and civil liberties. Joining us to talk a bit more about uh, this report. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon. Joanna Barron, Executive Director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. We're at the CCF.ca. Joanna, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program.
2: Great to be here with you.
1: So talk about how you went about compiling this. What what kind of criteria were you using? How did you come up with these grades? Well,
2: So we looked at a few fundamental categories, democracy and the rule of law, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, which you touched on in your intro, sort of right to protest, but also right to gather in a place of worship, mobility rights, life, liberty and security and privacy. And then we worked with some law professors and legal experts to look at the measures that the premiers and, of course, as you mentioned, the prime minister and a few local leaders took. And then we averaged out the grades, and you know nobody got an A. Our best grade was a B. but mm-hmm. as you mentioned, there was um, there was striking differences even across our country in the approaches. and the interesting interestingly, they did not track with political parties. so there was no more likelihood that a liberal or NDP or conservative premier was going to be more or less respectful of rights um, than any other. So clearly this is something that supersedes political ideology.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you see that in in Alberta and B.C., the Conservative Premier of Alberta, the NDP Premier of B.C., both with the same grade. Uh, But there is quite a range. There is no A, as you mentioned, but uh, there are a couple of Bs all the way down to an F. So we do see some fairly stark differences across the country, don't we?
2: Yeah, yeah. And the F that you mentioned is the Newfoundland Premier, or as he was, uh, Doug Ball. Sorry, I should say Dwight Ball. And he just, you know showed I would say flagrant disrespect for fundamental rights empowered explicitly empowered police to uh, take bodily samples scroll through people's cell phones at the merest suspicion completely closed the borders and we heard from individuals and this is a common theme I would say to Atlantic Canada but Newfoundland went the furthest in closing the borders even to immediate family members trying to enter the province um, for funerals or for pressing medical needs, um, which is an unconstitutional violation of our charter-guaranteed mobility rights.
1: Right. And we'll, we'll go through some of the other specifics here. Let's talk about the, the kind of general principle, I guess, of you know, respecting those rights, even while dealing with a health crisis. And, and I don't think this report is arguing that governments shouldn't have done anything to respond to the pandemic. Uh, and at the same time, though, I think, you know, governments do need to be careful about how far they go in responding. And some have gone a lot further than others. But but what, what are your general thoughts on where, where that balance is is to be found?
2: Well, I would say a few general principles. First of all, any executive action which has the effect of entrenching their emergency powers, which we don't deny that there's a need to act quickly, act swiftly, um, and not be sort of trammeled by the messy business of democracy. We can see how there's a limited space for that in the in during a true emergency. However, those rights should be limited. They should have clearly articulated sunset clauses and they should be made public so that the the electorate in the given province is aware of them and they can democratically respond to them. And we saw a sort of plurality of premiers and of course the prime minister attempted to do this as well, bring in so-called Henry VIII clauses. So that's one thing. Trying to entrench your power after the emergency has passed is unacceptable it's not justified by the emergency and it's not justified in law and second of all as you say uh, there has to be a reasonable balance between the public health evidence at the time and the measures taken so the Atlantic premieres Uh, insistence on internal border closures even between the Atlantic provinces themselves at one point but certainly to other Canadians is simply not justified by the case counts which you know some of these provinces went weeks and months without a single case of coronavirus so it's not justified by the evidence so they can't just sort of do things because it seems like a useful prophylactic it has to be based in some existing reality in order to justify the real infringements.
1: Now, the, the top of the list, and it's interesting because it's, it's the western provinces, there's uh, B's for Manitoba and Saskatchewan, B-minus for British Columbia and Alberta. So w- when you look at those that top the list, maybe it's more of a case then of what they didn't do compared to, to some of those at the bottom of the list, but w- what stands out about the provinces uh, who managed to get the B or, or the B-minus in Alberta's case? Well,
2: I would say, first of all, uh, respect for rights of protest and assembly. So Brian Pallister in Manitoba, um made vocal comments in support that as long as people were following public health orders they had the right to protest and kept the parks open which we've seen now as the evidence evolved or which it has been for a while that um that being outside and safely social distancing is not a threat and so we should keep these spaces open particularly for individuals who don't have open spaces in their own homes. Uh, Brian Palliser also made a point of making sure that any elective surgeries, which were canceled, were rebooked by June. Uh, Similar with uh, Horgan of British Columbia, he made efforts to rebook surgeries, which had been delayed, although we also say he was quite hypocritical because he relied on the use of private clinics, which his government is is fighting against in doing so. So I would just say it was acting in a way that was moderate that relied on making the best possible public health information available to people setting out guidance and not taking overly draconian measures for no reason
1: now, the Prime Minister is on this list as well, and he's sort of middle of the pack at, at C+. Now, what's interesting, though, because a lot of these public health measures were done at the provincial level, so wh- where does the federal government factor in here, and how do you go about determining a grade for the Prime Minister?
2: Well, the federal government does have an Emergency Powers Act that they could have invoked. They declined to do so. Um, and as you say, it was probably not strictly necessary for them because most of the administrative actions which go into controlling a pandemic are covered under the provincial emergency bill and all of the provinces invoked them. Nonetheless, they could have invoked it um, in order to give them extra power or for some uh, political effect. However, he did take some actions which we are gravely critical of. He suspended Parliament, even though there were reasonable proposals for safe and socially distanced way for the House to sit. He replaced it with daily press briefings where he could sort of hold forth in the court of public opinion and not have to face uh, criticism of the opposition. He, of course, attempted to empower his minority government with a tax and spend power until 2022, um, and thankfully, there was sufficient outcry about that, even though it was brought in sort of in the 11th hour for him to decline to do so. However, there were other things that he didn't do that he certainly could have um, that, were, that left him in the middle of the pack. So, for example, the contact tracing app for the virus that the federal government ended up implementing is much less invasive to privacy than other solutions that were on the table. And in fact, one of which, Jason Kenney, imposed in alberta so it doesn't collect any personal information in any sort of centralized hub uh, and of course the prime minister vocally and visibly was in support of protests that happened earlier in the summer even appearing at once um, and so by by example and by statement supported the right to freedom of assembly
1: now, as we move forward, I mean, it, it seems unlikely that we're going to return to the more stricter measures that were initially imposed in March and April. But is it necessarily a guarantee that if you were to do the same thing six months from now or a few months from now, that that every premier would have a, a higher grade?
2: I, I don't think so, to be honest. So here in Ontario, where I live, Doug Ford has brought in a bill which extends the identical provincial emergency orders, even while stating that the actual emergency is over. Uh, He also created a database which gives police and first responders access to people's coronavirus status. So I I think that these instincts that our political leaders have to reach for the power grab in moments of public emergency, I think that that instinct is hardwired. And I certainly think if there's a second wave, um, that we'll see a lot more of these antics which is why we decided to write this report to make sure that Canadians are aware of how thoroughly their rights have been trampled on during this pandemic, which unfortunately doesn't seem like it's about about to end anytime soon.
1: That's true. Much more at theccf.ca. Joanna, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Joanna Barron is executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. This report, grading our leaders, respect for the Constitution during the COVID-19 crisis, again at the theccf.ca. So ranking the premiers and the prime minister uh, on how much they remain committed to rights and civil liberties uh, through this pandemic situation. I want to talk about an interesting story unfolding in uh, of Calgary. And it's it's a conversation that's been happening In Black Diamond and Turner Valley for a long time now, some changes to policing and police funding has has added some impetus to this. The idea of these two towns becoming one, merging, amalgamating, uniting. Obviously, they're very close in proximity, closely linked in a lot of ways. doesn't make sense to, to make it a formal union. Joining us to talk more about uh, where things stand and uh, some of the arguments for and against uh, this idea is the mayor of Black Diamond, Ruth Goodwin, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Ruth, uh, great to talk to you here. Welcome to the program.
3: much, Rob. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation, sir.
1: Well, I think it's an interesting conversation because, I mean, it, it, a lot of it speaks to, you know, the, the challenges that smaller communities face and maybe where there's some, some opportunities and finding partnerships and efficiencies. And for people not familiar uh, and, and I think it's certainly their loss. But not familiar with uh, Black Diamond and Turner Valley, and that gorgeous part of Alberta. It'll give people an idea of just kind of the, the similarities between the two towns, just how close in proximity you are.
3: Well, in fact, <laughs> Rob, just in in the last year, uh, Black Diamond was successful in negotiating uh, an annexation. Uh, of of approximately five-quarters of land. And during that process, we have now been able to uh, provide a border that abuts with Turner Valley. And we now have that contiguous border that, of course, through the uh, amalgamation process, it's part of the application requirements that you have to be, um, uh, well, side by side, you have to be abut one another so you know it's it's just one of those things that as we move through this process and, and the conversations over and just in in my involvement in the last uh seven and a half years or so um it's just yeah it's just part of the the way things have gone
1: mm-hmm. and, and it's a conversation that's been happening for a long time there was a plebiscite in both communities i think in in 2007 now let's talk about what's changed with regard to policing and the cost for municipalities and why that's given some some real impetus to this idea
3: well, previously, Rob, uh, the two communities through the amalgamation feasibility study that was accepted by both councils in 2017, it was pointed out that upon amalgamation, any community over the size of 5,000 would then be uh, responsible for the shared police costs, and at that point in time, um, it was to me it was cost prohibitive, and that's the way the majority of, of both councils had felt at that time since then uh, there have been some changes and provincially now um, the cost of policing has been um, shared Uh, it's it's come down and uh, it's come down from the province that all of the municipalities now within alberta will be sharing the cost of the policing uh, the first is a five-year program. Uh, the first year, approximately, you know, between fifty-two to fifty-six thousand dollars, and then it incrementally goes out. So, year four and year five, Black Diamond will will be receiving an invoice from the province for approximately one hundred sixty-nine thousand dollars. So, wow. moving forward, uh, it does not make sense um, that that be the reason then that we not. Um, continue on with the conversation and the process of amalgamation it is not an obstacle any longer the continued comprehensive collaboration between the two communities um, should make this a much easier process than if we were at odds with one another but we have not and I appreciate your um, your uh, description of the united uh, front that both communities uh, have been displaying and we have done that in many ways and the collaboration between the two towns of course has been reflected in in our water and wastewater and shared in our corporations and and uh, uh, collaboration of course in the garbage collection um, family and and community support services and just recently in the last year um, we have come together to have a joint economic development committee. And that in itself, I think, is, is speaks to the success and the support um, that we have received from our community and our business community. And, uh, yeah, so there we go.
1: So, yeah, so becoming then a community of 5,000, which bringing Black Diamond and Turner Valley together would do, that would, uh-huh. that would mean a big savings then in terms of those policing costs, wouldn't it?
3: well we we will then uh be able to apply for grants and funds um that we wouldn't ordinarily be able to under uh, the 5,000. And uh, so that again is an impetus in, to be able to continue on with the discussion and to move forward um, with an amalgamation. And when we're talking about cost savings, uh, initially what you will see is a cost savings of one council and one CAO. So that, that's right off the bat. And there's no argument about that. We don't need two councils and two CAOs under yeah. the umbrella of, of one community. And um, yeah.
1: So it, it sounds like there's momentum behind the idea. What, what are your thoughts on, on the, nece- the necessity of, of um, more plebiscites on the question?
3: Uh, well, we've had two plebiscites, and uh, the, the first one, uh, of course, reflected just the opposite um, uh, feeling between the two communities. So the the first time it was Black Diamond that said yes and, and Turner Valley that said no in in the end. Uh, and the one in 2007, it was just the opposite. So Black Diamond uh, voters See, said yeah. no and Turner Valley said yes. But the thing too is that with plebiscite you have to be really careful in making sure and ensuring that the questions are the same. And I believe in the last plebiscite, the question was not the same. Moving forward, of course, you know, we all realize that um, in today's economy, we are looking at um, less monies coming coming forward and to municipalities um, from both provincial and federal. So COVID has put a bit of a a crank in in how these monies will be dispersed. Um, It's really important that we continue to collaborate um, very closely as we, you know, go through this process to ensure that um, the cost savings will be realized. It does take money in order to save money, Rob. And you and I both know that. Um, we, we experience that from our day-to-day experiences and, and when we own a home or a car or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it's just it's, it just makes sense now.
1: Uh, Now, there's the question of what what this new town would be named, obviously, but there's also that question that goes with that, you know, given the, you know, the identity and the history of both communities, how, how do you how do you ensure that that's preserved?
3: Well, you you never lose your history of your community. That that always stays with you. Um, the names of the communities don't need to change. It's just the corporate name that we would be looking at at addressing. So, I, I mean, the name, and I, I'm throwing this out there, and I mean a lot of people have heard it, Diamond Valley. This is this is no. what this area is known as. And and you take a um, one of the words from both of the names, and you collaborate and and make it, of course, Diamond Valley. But again, that's going to be part of our public engagement process is to find out what people think and um, what they would like to see. Um, When people, after the amalgamation, when people say, well, where do you live? Well, I live in Diamond Valley. Well, we're in Diamond Valley. Well, I personally live in Black Diamond. Well, we're in Black Diamond. I'm in the Northeast. Well, there you go. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's no different than a lot of uh, what we've already seen in Calgary. is a really good example. I tend to use Calgary quite often as a, as a really good example that when a smaller community, um, in, in the case of Calgary, of course, um when, when a smaller community joins a, a larger community or vice versa, you do have these small neighborhoods. So Bowness would be a really good example. Um, Midnapore would be another one. Right. Just because you amalgamate with a larger or another community, it doesn't mean that you lose your identity. If, if nothing else, Rob, we're creating history. And at this point, I would say that, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that are very excited about becoming one. And, you know, I really appreciate your word, uh, united. I think that that mm-hmm. really speaks volumes for how the majority of people are feeling.
1: So what what are next steps here, then?
3: Well, on September 15th, uh, both councils will be, um, I, sorry, I refer to it as dropping a letter to municipal affairs, but sending a letter to municipal affairs, uh, identifying that we are going to start the process. Um, of the amalgamation discussions and negotiations and uh, so that's that how the process begins Um, from that point then the hard work really does begin and we're able then to um, ask the questions that we've we've had to hold back from asking uh, because some of those questions require some uh, funding and in order to uh, be able to I guess, apply for some of those provincial funds to be able to ask those questions. This process then had to be generated or started somewhere at some point. The public consultation and education will be ongoing, Rob. Uh, we're looking forward to starting that this fall and it's just really uh, important to us and of course to our community that we stay engaged and ensure that they continue to engage with us to tell us what they're thinking and to continue to ask us the questions because after they've read all of the information if there are still questions then we need to address those we need to show at the end of this process that we have identified or attempted to respond to and answer every question that we that has been posed to us
1: all right we'll keep an eye on that Uh, mayor goodwin thanks for joining us here this afternoon really appreciate this
3: thanks so much rob for the opportunity i appreciate it and you have a wonderful day
1: you as well thanks ruth goodwin is the mayor of black diamond um potentially maybe a future mayor of something else diamond valley or some other name Um, And you know, and that's it's interesting how you know you you talk about it because if you're from Black Diamond, you're from Turner Valley, that's kind of how you refer to it. That's your home, that's your town. And it wouldn't necessarily change. If someone's from Fort McMurray, they're going to tell you that they live in Fort McMurray. If someone's from Sherwood Park, they're going to tell you that they're from Sherwood Park and they live in Sherwood Park. But people who live in Sherwood Park don't vote for a Sherwood Park City Council or a Sherwood Park Mayor. They elect municipal politicians to Strathcona County Council. People who live in Fort McMurray are electing municipal politicians for the municipality of Wood Buffalo. Well, procrastination is nothing new. I I do wonder, though, with these uh, months now of people, a lot of people working from home, whether it's easier to fall into that trap to get distracted by other things, uh, to put off what you could be doing right now. Now, I mean, I'm often guilty of that. You know, sometimes the excuse can be, well, it's better to, to leave it as late as possible. You don't work better under pressure sort of thing. Uh, but sometimes it can be tempting. That, well, I'll let future me deal with it, and present me can worry about something else. So what is it about procrastination? Is it just, is it just laziness? Is it something else? Well, someone who has studied this uh, very closely is uh, in fact the author of a new study on procrastination that was published recently in Personality and Individual Differences, uh, a a scientific journal. Also author of a book on the subject called The Procrastination Equation, how to stop putting things off and start getting things done. I, I think a lot of people would probably rather not procrastinate but why do we do it? Joining us to talk more about all these issues, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Dr. Pierce Steele, who's a professor yeah. at the Brookfield Resident Chair at the University of Calgary's Haskayne School of Business. Professor Steele, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program.
4: Uh, great to be here.
1: So how, how do you define, first of all, procrastination?
4: Oh, yeah. there is. Well, it's more than just putting stuff off. right? right. You know, this, we wouldn't say scheduling and procrastination are the same. But you know, you know, Woody Allen says time is nature's way of preventing everything from happening at once. So we have to put some things off to later. Mm-hmm. Procrastination becomes procrast—delay becomes procrastination. When that stuff we put off later is really things in our heart of heart know we should have done now. In fact, it's going to get harder to do later. It's going to be more anxiety if we do it later, and we'll do just do a worse job if we do it later. And knowing this, we got to know this, right? You can't just, oh, my gosh, you know, what happened? We knowingly do it. We knowingly are making delays that make our lives worse.
1: Yeah, there's forgetting to do something, but there's very deliberately choosing not to do something now, knowing you're going to have to do it eventually.
4: That's right. You know, there's there's kind of a little kind of, uh, it almost gets Freudian in a while because we make, you know, justification. Usually we decide to delay and then we decide why we should have done that, made that choice, right? So the, no. So we're justifying after the fact. So there's some kind of little, you know, self justification going on sometimes, but mostly we know that we would prefer to have the motivation to do it now. We just don't have it in our heart. It's right? not there.
1: Right. So, so as you say, I mean, there, there's an awareness that we're doing it. Is, is that an awareness that leads to, I don't know, I mean, is, is it shame? Do we, does it contribute maybe to a, an erosion at any degree of, you know, our our self-worth or, you know, kind of how we feel about ourselves?
4: Well, yeah, there's, there's some of that. There's actually kind of a variety of different reasons why they can contribute to it. Um, you know, some one big thing was I thought it was, uh, you know, perfectionism. And, you know, we are such big perfectionists that the anxiety, but that's not really the case. It's only, you know, almost 95, 90, 95% of the people procrastinate, 90, 95% of the world is not perfectionist. So, but it can contribute to that. What mostly what it is, is impulsiveness. And that is simply having a real short time horizon. It's, it's very difficult for us to get motivation for things in the future, things that happen next week, next month. So even though we want to have the motivation now, it has to be almost within line of sight. You have to see it. And I got to see the whites of its eyes before the motivation really clicks on. And by that time you're often in panic mode, you know, it's, it's not ideal. Where was that motivation earlier when we wanted it? it it's, it's um and we had to wait we're almost forced to wait the motive, the deadline decides when we're motivated not ourselves um and there's some good reasons that it works that way if you're in a hunter and gathering society where food rots in a day or two and things are really uncontrollable you know it's kind of a, it's a natural prioritizing mechanism but In today's civilization, where we have, you know, four-year degrees and retirement plans and, you know, long-term projects, it doesn't work well anymore. And it gets, you know, with all this quarantining and working from home, it just makes matters worse. Right. Yeah.
1: Um, the, the idea of being able, you know, to get started on something and it can be tough to, to get started at things. And so I, I use the example. So I, I write columns or commentary pieces and, and more often than not, you know, I leave it to the last minute yeah. because there's that pressure that you don't have any choice, but to do it at that moment. Otherwise it can be tough to get started it can be tough to, to, you know, put yeah. yourself in the mindset, right? of okay, I got to sit down and do this.
4: Yeah. And if you can, if you can, if it's something you can whip off in an hour, right, then, and maybe the last moment's okay. But it's it's but there's other projects which are bigger and you know, the hour isn't enough. You kinda of wish you had two or three or a day. Um that's when it becomes really irrational and kind of you know, self handicapping, self destructive. And but we still do it. It and um a lot of what it basically is is that Um, You know, we've even done fMRIs, the functional magnetic imaging studies. Well, not me personally, but other people have. um, And it shows that the limbic system is really the get-up-and-go part of the brain. The prefrontal cortex is the planning. So when you plan something, that is basically when you choose to do it. But when you're actual feeling motivated, that's more of the limbic system. So it's almost like two keys. In a like a nuclear silo, and they both have to be turned to going. And usually, we only have one turn that's the decision that you made the choice to do something, but you know, the motivation simply isn't there. We we kind of liken it to sometimes, you know, earlier on you're drinking from an eyedropper in terms of motivation, and then just before the deadline, you're drinking from a fire hose. There's so much motivation.
1: (laughs) Well, let's talk about these two concepts you talk about in this study onset delay. Yeah. And sustained goal striving yeah so what what are the key differences there
4: well, yeah can I kind of alluded to it briefly already um mm-hmm. but you know helping you give it happen you have a segue, but it was the... <laughs> uh, but it's the the on one basically people can delay in two different parts of the uh of the procrastination puzzle um and one is let's say you know we we're just talking about um on the right rate right, about evacuation, let's say you either Hurricane Laura is coming, and you have to make a choice. Are you going to bunker down, or are you going to evacuate? It's a difficult choice to make. So some people might put off that choice. But once they made the choice, they are getting their stuff together and their valuables and their food, and they're they're go, go, go. Other people may, may, for example, um, have made the choice they're going to evacuate, but they put off. You know, making all the preparations that they need to actually get going. So we find there's like a, there, there's that those two two stages to it, and some people are really good at making the choices, but struggle with the striving, and other people are bad at the choices, but are better. at once they make a choice, at going, and of course, there's some people who are good at both, and some poor poor lost soils who are or a bat of both, and
1: that's a rough ride. <laughs> well, and, and you mentioned how, it, you know, this can be worse for people working at home, and, and maybe a big part of that is there's just so many more distractions at home. Oh, yeah,
4: yeah, definitely. I mean, proximity to temptation is an excellent predictor of their use, you know. And we always say it's difficult to diet if you're living in a candy store, right? <laughs> sure. so, yes. And, but what is our homes other than a candy store, Really? You know, we, we, we it's our homes. We filled them with everything good, all the things we love. So, and you have Netflix and Prime and Hulu and all your streaming services, and you have all the food, and you have all the temptation right there, and this is the same type of environment you're trying to work. There's a reason why offices exist, there's a reason why desks exist, so... A lot of your motivation is triggered by the environment. I mean, there's people, like, you feel tired, you want to go to the gym, but you, if you can drag your story ass into that class or whatever, all of a sudden, you know, more often than not, motivation suddenly appears. It's cued by the environment. The, kind of the brain wakes up. Oh, it says, this is what you want me to do. I got it. But let's say you're you're working on the same computer you're gaming on. Well, that's two cues, isn't it? one for work and one for gaming. And you can pretty much know which one's going to be stronger, especially if you kind of get into any boring part of your work. And basically they're paying you money because part of it is definitely going to be boring. You know, if it was all exciting and and happiness, they wouldn't have to pay very much. And you probably wouldn't be doing it for that price. (laughs) So um, you're doing, and at that point, the mind naturally is going to say, okay, this is boredom. Boredom is a natural cue to say this is irrelevant even though we know it's not, but we have that natural pathway. So you get bored and it thinks, what else could I be doing? And boom, I could be playing a game. I could be surfing. I could go to YouTube. And those algorithms are just, you know, (laughs) they're designed to be the most tempting thing for you in the world. I mean, back in the, you know, like, you know, a decade or two ago, there was just, you know, TV. I mean, that was for mass media. It was for everybody. These channels are for you. They're designed to get what you will most likely consume. It's like you know an old your own private um, broadcasting corporation for you, and that's pretty damn tempting. And you're doing that in the same place you're working. I mean, what did we? It's it's just bad design. So we have to kind of figure a way of reconfiguring our home to put temptations at a harder distance and you know, we talk about you know the cookies on the counter are eaten faster than the ones in the in a tin which are eaten faster than the one in a pantry which are eaten faster than ones you have to cook and then you have to go to the store itself you know the, the temptation at that point is is feeble so we when you work at home temptation is always at your elbow and that makes a very difficult
1: situation <laughs> Well, yeah, I, so, I mean, you know, things like but having, a, having a home office, having a dedicated space where you're working, yeah, right, so you're at yeah. least kind of more physically separating yourself. What about the idea of, of more structured routine or even, you know, making a list? That, I mean, are there oh, ways yeah. that people can kind of police their own behavior as it were?
4: Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, places can be a trigger, but also time can be a trigger. I mean, you can think about when we returned from, let's say, if you got a workout routine, you're returning from vacation very difficult to get back into. It takes a week or two for the kind of associations to build up, and all of a sudden you're just doing it. That's ideal. You just want to get up and do your work. You don't have to make a decision all the time about it. If you have a routine, oh, at 9 o'clock, you know, I kind of go and I start my work and I work to 12, and you just do that all the time, eventually you're not even thinking about it. You're just doing it. You know, the, um, they actually give you the same type of advice for sleep. People have a problem with sleep. They say, well, you need to have a regular schedule. You need to get to bed at a time. You need to keep your bedroom free of temptations. And if you can't sleep, let's say if you can't work, you get up and you go to another part of your house and you turn. The same principles apply for work. So if you find yourself wanting a distraction, you've got to get away from your workplace and do that somewhere else to help kind of you kind of you're growing like almost like a gardener you're growing those associations with your watering can of repetition and every time you can dedicate and say yes in that location to that work it becomes a little stronger but every time you kind of go in and you play or you kind of violate that routine it gets a little weaker and you're just making things harder for yourself next time eventually you just want them you, know, you just do you just want it to happen but, you know, it won't happen unless you garden, unless you take care of that work schedule.
1: Important stuff. Uh, much more on uh, the science of procrastination at procrastinus.com. Cool. Professor Steele, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate the insight on this.
4: I hope you hope some of it was useful.
1: <laughs> I hope so, too. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Pierce Steele, professor at the University of Calgary uh, haskin School of Business. He is the uh, Brookfield Resident Chair at the uh, Haskin School of Business. Uh, So as mentioned, uh, procrastinus.com is the website, more on some of the research being done into procrastination and science, the book he wrote uh, as well. Uh, which uh, I think goes back to 2010, the procrastination equation, how to stop putting things off and start getting things done. And as mentioned, this uh, new study published this week. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.